Today's episode is sponsored by Stitch Fix. Their new maternity stylus will help you build your pregnancy and postpartum wardrobe each step of the way. It's easy. You simply create your style profile, request a fix whenever and however often you choose, and the best part, your stylist chooses a wardrobe selection that shows up on your doorstep and you keep only what you love. Head over to motherbirth.co slash stitchfix to learn more, sign up, and even support the podcast at no extra cost to you. You know, not everyone will do this, but there's just so much pressure on this day being this perfect Instagram ideal. And I just, we just thought, what a terrible thing to do to a part, a new partnership is to take on huge amounts of debt and then be in stress. Welcome to Mother Birth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey everyone, welcome to Mother Birth Today. Laura and I are here. We are all spread out over the world right now. Um, I've just hit the road with my family again, and I'm currently in Tahoe. The last time I was in Tahoe, well actually, the last time we were in Tahoe together, Laura, we recorded (laughs) a couple episodes here. Um, and so it's always fun and inspiring to be here. And today we actually have a guest that I feel like this episode has been a long time coming. We are going to be chatting with Sarah Peck who started, uh, well, I'll use the word founded because it will be a tongue twister otherwise, who founded Startup Pregnant. And she and I have been friends sort of on the internet for a while, um, connected originally, I think through my husband, Chase, who has, you know, random entrepreneur friends around the globe. And, um, somehow it came about that we realized the two of us need to know each other. And so we've sort of, we've never actually met in person, but Sarah, I feel like you are like a kindred spirit of mine and someone that I, you know, value deeply in my life. So thank you to start for that. Um, but I'm so glad to be having this conversation. I have loved and admired your work across the internet. And there are people who you just, you're like, I really like you, you know, (laughs) I I don't even know if we've ever even video called to each other, but we have. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's funny. Yeah. I remember this is like almost embarrassing, but I remember you wrote some, you like posted something on Facebook one time and it was like this anonymous, like third person, like, you know, um, you were just basically saying to this, you know, to this person, I see you. And I was like, I think she's talking about me. <laughs> I wa- oh my God. I remember that. I was yeah, talking I mess- about you. And I messaged you and I was like, this is super presumptuous, but I think you were talking about me in your post. And also again, sorry and weird if you, you weren't talking about me, but I feel like we should be friends. <laughs> I don't, you know what? I remember the feeling of that post, but I don't remember the specifics of it. I don't, I don't actually. <laughs> that's so I don't funny, either. but I do remember it. I was totally talking about you. That's yeah, funny. That is funny. <laughs> well, here we are. We're going to hear Sarah's story today. And Sarah is a very inspiring person who has really allowed her journey of motherhood to kind of morph and transform her um career life. So I'm not going to say anything else. Sarah, let's just let you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do and then we'll kind of we'll kind of back up and tell your, you know, your story as it relates to motherhood. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um I run a company called Startup Pregnant and I am in the second uh nearing the third year of mapping that out and figuring out what it means, but 
the inspiration for starting it was I had a background in architecture and then got into the online world and the blogging space. That's how I met Chase and started doing what a lot of people do, teaching what you know, um, as Paul Jarvis would say. And I taught some courses online about writing and about content strategy and thought leadership and ended up joining a, um, for those of you from or around the Silicon Valley area, a Y Combinator backed startup. It's like a fancy venture, <laughs> <laughs> a fancy venture capitalist backed um, startup with a lot of money to spend. And we had a team of like 10 people and we were a company, it was like three or four years ago, maybe five years ago when, when companies teaching people how to code really started to take off. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I joined them and I started working, it was more corporate than anything I'd done in a long time. I started working at this company, even though it was just 10 people and we were, we were, we were cool startup kids. Um, mm-hmm. and I, there's so many interesting things we can talk about in here before I joined, I talked to the CEO who was a friend of mine. That's how they recruited me. And I said, look, I'm 29, 30. I am going to make babies in the next decade of my life. That's one Mm -hmm. of the things I want to try to do. And I just got married. So I would love to join your team. And I don't want this to come as a surprise. This is something that like newsflash Humans have babies. We make yeah. them all the time. It's actually very predictable. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like trying to take it as a very matter of fact thing. And he was so cool about it. He was like, great, let's figure it out. That's what startups do. We figure things out, mm-hmm. right? We're in the business of trying to make things work. And I loved his attitude and I joined the team. And about a year later, I was the first woman to get <clears throat> pregnant And it really knocked me sideways in ways I wasn't expecting. I really didn't like being pregnant. I felt some like profound loss and depression in the beginning because it just everything I had built and I had known to be true about myself slowly felt like it was just falling away. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt really lonely because I was on a team with mostly guys, mostly single guys, mostly single white guys. And, um, and especially in the tech world, the Silicon Valley world where there's so much, there's a few, there's a few golden shining lights, but there's a lot of animosity towards women. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sexism. It's not just, it's not just tech, it's everywhere and misogyny. And then also this like, like, what do we do with women that are pregnant? Like idiotic attitude that I just couldn't understand. And, and so I, you know, this idea startup pregnant, I was like, what am I doing? I'm at a startup and I'm pregnant and this is totally insane, but why? Why is it Mm -hmm. insane? Like why, why is there this very masculine world of startups and this very feminine world-ish of of pregnancy? Like this, I feel like I was tapping into this feminine power, um, which includes things like rage. It's not, you know, when you look at the feminine (laughs) goddesses, like it's like, I, I was like, I had some rage episodes. Um, and, the the philosophy of like mashing them up next to each other and not separating them was something that really provoked my curiosity and kind of launched a new path for me. Hmm. I think that's really interesting. It's almost like, um, you know, the ceilings have always been the metaphor for we, we are ceiling, you know, whatever that is, if it's salary or functionality in different ventures as women, you know, but I feel like in hearing you talk, it's also just like, it's so much more of just 
these these are the categories of the boxes that people are put in. It's like, well, if you're going to be in the venture capitalist box and the startup box, you're definitely not going to be a, a mom. You're right. definitely not going to be a woman building a family. Like, or you, don't or here. you can't, or you can, but like, you're going to have two weeks of maternity leave and have a full time nanny from day one, and right. you know, like you, you're going to have to completely choose one or the other. There's no right. hybridism. What Steph talked about. Oh, sorry. When Steph talked about just that idea, it's like, yeah, there was women having babies, but the two choices were like, you either someone else completely raises your kids or you just never move up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You kind of so flatline for your yeah. career. Yeah. 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 Which I think is so interesting because especially for a world that, that purportedly, and I live in New York city and I have noise canceling mm-hmm. curtains, but there's sometimes siren sounds. So no worries. <laughs> background context. Um, but I think it's so interesting for a world, this startup world, that's like, we're disruptive. We're innovative. We do things differently. We think differently like Apple, right? Think different. Mm-hmm. It's one of their lead campaigns that to run up against cliches that are tried and untrue or to have a lack of a, of even a curiosity. People are like, oh, well, when are you going to get your body back? Or you're going to just want to become a mom. Like the very places that are ripe for disruption are the places where we're saying the same things over and over again and not questioning or examining them. Mm. And so there's all of this opportunity inside of it where I was just like, what if it's actually awesome to have a pregnant woman on your team? Like, what if we're missing out? What if having somebody on your team has all these benefits benefits and actually the way we've been thinking about this has been all wrong. Yeah. Well, you're you're actually the person, if I recall correctly, that connected us with Lauren Smith Brody who wrote The Fifth Trimester. And yeah. I love that. Like that's her that's her whole take is like actually like creativity is amplified during this season of life. Like productivity is amplified during the season of life. Yes, we have to completely reevaluate how we structure things. Um, but we, we don't have to go into this with this assumption that if you're pregnant or in the early motherhood years that you are like at half mast and practically useless to society or to the workforce, you know, which is, which is so depressing and so unvital and so untrue. And then the other thing that we, we had a, a conversation with this amazing, um, gal down in Australia, Summer Edwards, and she just put it so amazingly, this idea that, um, you know, women fought so hard, feminists fought so hard to be in the workplace and, and to really like to have that, that value and that place. But what we didn't realize is that we were fighting to be part of a structure that was designed for men who had like this whole support system, which mostly meant they had a wife, a full-time wife and mother at home. So it, it doesn't, you know, like what, basically what you're saying is we, it doesn't make any sense that we're trying to like, we're trying to do it the way we're trying to do it. And so I have a question for you. You, you had this venture startup situation before you got pregnant, you were really transparent with your boss and said, Hey, this is, you know, what I'm intending for this next season of my life. Is this a place that can be supportive of that? And he said, yes, totally. We're nimble and we're flexible and we're disruptive. But yet when you were pregnant, you felt this huge disconnect. Did you feel like he or that organization sort of paid lip service to like, we'll figure it out. And then that didn't really come through. Mm, That's a great question. And no, not exactly. Um, the, the, he was Matan. It was incredible about like working through a lot of it with me. And we did a a Mm -hmm. big research project about figuring out like, what is the maternity leave policy? What does parental leave policy look like? What are the big company, you know, tech companies doing? What can we afford? 
as a small company? And how do we set precedent for other employees down the line? And what about co-parents? And so we were able to ask a lot of questions, but the, this is, this is where that like invisible labor, emotional labor kind of dialogue comes in. Um, this Mm -hmm. is analogous, but not directly the same thing. The, the, the act of having to do all that work is a lot of extra work. Yeah. Like figuring it out. Yeah. Figure it out. Think about it. Analyze research, um, create policy, test the assumptions and do it while you're in the first trimester when your energy goes down by like half. Adding a project on top of that is just really challenging to do. Um, And 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 so, you know, there was so much frustration that came up where I was like, why are we why is this not something that has been figured out already? Like I I embrace the idea that I want to figure this out as we go. And, um, gosh, darn it. Like what are, why is this so challenging for women? And, you know, why do I have to be the one that carries the flagship? Why does nobody else on this team want to, or care about figuring this out? Like how come this affects only me? Mm -hmm. And so it was a combination and a blend. And then layered into that is, startups have a failure rate of like 90%, right? So most of them are pretty precarious. They're testing something. They're going to see if it's going to work. So uh, a few months after I got pregnant, we started to hit some downturns and I got roped into the, um, the budget meetings and the operations meetings. And I ended up doing a lot of, um, they, the two co-founders needed a third person to parry with, to like, because of decision-making, it's really hard to make a decision with two people. So yeah. I ended up being in this uh, third position and I was nominated. What is it? I can't even, <laughs> I'm a little sleep deprived right now, currently being pregnant and in a third <laughs> trimester, not nominated, promoted. I was promoted <laughs> to um, <laughs> the first VP of the company. So I was in all of the leadership meetings and we were losing money. We didn't have enough runway. We had to lay off a whole bunch of people in my second trimester. And then we had to make decisions about what we were going to do. And I knew the runway we had was about as long, long as I had before I was having a baby. And it was mm. terrifying. Like it was, I was like, well, I have a job. Can you take parental leave if the company you're taking parental leave from doesn't exist? Right. And am I making decisions that are best for the company or best for myself? Where's the conflict of interest here, right? Am I in the room where I'm deciding that I'm the one that needs to get fired? Like these are gut-wrenching decisions. And um, so when I went on maternity leave, when the baby arrived, one of the questions was, will the company still be viable when I get back? And Mm -hmm. when I got back, we were heading in a couple of new and interesting directions, but doubling down on the focus of teaching harder and harder skills, technical skills like JavaScript and Java. And people were asking for things that were out of the range of my competence. So, mm-hmm. and I also simultaneously had the, the like desire and pull to, um, to, to follow this concept, this startup pregnant concept. And I, while I was six weeks postpartum, I didn't want to shower. I didn't care. I mean, I was starving, but I didn't care about what food I was eating. I just wanted to write. And I put the finishing touches on a book proposal and I sent it to an agency in New York City. It was called Startup Pregnant. And she was like, this is interesting. Let's talk about this. And so I talked to the co-founders about four or five months after I had um, finished maternity leave and returned to work. And I said, I have a chance to do one of my biggest life dreams, like Mm -hmm. to write this book. So it was a very 
amicable and understanding separation. And it was like a cleaving that happened at the right time. And I always, mm-hmm. it's such a complex, thank you for asking by the way, because it's, it's complicated because people will ask, you know, Oh, did you leave after maternity leave? Are you the, one of those moms that left after three months? Cause you couldn't uh, wing it, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, <laughs> totally. technically I left five months after I had a baby, but it is so much deeper and more interesting than that. And yeah. there are so many layers of like the business. And I mean, I was probably working, I was working part-time for one month. That was the name of the company. But then I was building my business and working on a big book proposal. My kid was in daycare full-time, but then we were going to take a financial hit as a family. Like all of that was all happening. Yeah. yeah. It is so complex. I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to overlook in none of these decisions happen in a vacuum. None of them are mm-hmm. independent or, you know, easily considered. Do you feel like when you kind of made that final separation, was it like, okay, this is the right thing. We can do this. I've got this. Or was it like, oh shit. I, so I hustled quite a bit and I launched, I had been running, um, mastermind programs and coaching programs mm-hmm. through my, my own website. Cause I'd been blogging for seven years before I joined this company. Yeah. So I put out an offering to people who had known me and followed me for two and a half years, but I hadn't really put anything in front of them. I actually mm-hmm. sold out that program. And that was one of the turnkeys for being like, Oh, it, I'm going to go, I'm going to go this. do yeah. this. Yeah. So, and it was like enough cash in the bank for four months. It wasn't it wasn't like, it was like, Hey, I've got a new job. I was like, now I have a newborn four months of cash and a partner. Can we mm-hmm. do this? Yeah. Yeah. How did your partner react to all of these shifts? I mean, cause you know, you're both adjusting to life as parents as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, the, the good news is that when we decided to get pregnant, um, to start trying, we, August, 2015, um, he was doing freelance work and was getting more and more unhappy with the work. And we got a positive pregnancy test and he was miserable. And Mm -hmm. I said, you should quit. And he said, I can't, we're trying to start a family. And we had this really intense conversation where I said, we can absolutely not let the next 20 years of our lives be about making just safe decisions. Like if you need to quit, you are miserable. So he quit like about the day after we found out we were pregnant. Um, and, and I was the one with health insurance and, and, uh, I'm using air quotes here, full-time startup job, you know, (laughs) the full-time job, but I was supporting us with health insurance. I just gotten pregnant and he quit and, I'm so happy he did because he quit on a Friday and then Monday there was a job posting that was the most perfect thing for him and Hmm. he went and applied and he got it and it was like, I don't even know if he would have been looking had he not been in the space and that kind of, that trapeze leap of leaving first and then the next thing coming, it is emotionally complex and really challenging and not always the right thing to do. I'm not saying quit your job, like (laughs) run around the world, become a nomad because that's, that's too simple of advice. But because we had that stable in our, in our partnership and, you know, we trusted each other and we try really hard to live off of one person's salary. So Mm -hmm. we never are trying to max out our, um, 
what do they call it? Quality of life. Like we're not trying to live up to the most that we're ever earning. We're actually always trying to set up a life where we can live a little bit smaller, use a little Mm -hmm. bit less, um, save money so that if we want to start projects or one of my lifelong dreams is to write books. If we do those, if we want to do those things, we can, and we Mm -hmm. can do this push and pull with each other of supporting, um, whenever we're trying to, you know, level yeah, up, totally take the next leap. Mm-hmm. So, We've so it wasn't done the same yeah. thing. Yeah. It's, it doesn't, you know, there's, t- there's seasons where it works great and seasons where it's, it's more challenging, but it has been a really, a great way to think about it. And it has given us a lot of opportunity for push and pull. And I would say that yeah. Chase and I have kind of always taken turns taking risks because we've, you know, we've, we've kind of built that into, into things. Interestingly, mm-hmm. we recently, um, felt like we were being prompted to like both take a risk at the same time, which was a whole different level, but, <laughs> but it sounds like you guys kind of, you know, I mean, in slightly different timelines, but really you both kind of like entered this parenthood season and both, you know, took, took some significant risks that felt, yeah. that felt extra scary because of the added responsibility of, you know, obviously there's a child, but it's like, who knows what's going to happen during this pregnancy or if it's going to be high risk, or if you're going to end up with, you know, like an expensive situation with this side or the other, you know, it's like, there's just so much to think about, or at least we feel like Mm -hmm. there's so much to think about. Yeah. And the whole world is marketing to you to buy, buy, buy more things like babies do need stuff. There's a lot that you do need, but also, um, I remember my stepmom told me, she was like, we didn't have a crib for a year. You just pulled out a drawer from your dresser and that was fine. And I, I just hold that so close because it's, you know, when we started, we're like, Oh, we need, you know, he needs his own room and we need a dresser and we need these things. And then we looked around and we realized Alex had a dresser and I had a dresser. Well, what if we shared one? And then used Mm -hmm. another one for the kid. And then if we had two kids, they could share one. And we never really had to add more furniture. And just taking a little bit of a softer approach to, it's hard, right? Because it's all layered into anxiety and and the world plays on our anxiety and our fears. And we're afraid we're going to be bad at parenting or that we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. I don't know what I'm doing, right? None of us do. And, Mm -hmm. and, And so it's like, ah, maybe if I buy the right diaper pad, it'll all be okay. And it's not yeah, I actually remember like talking at length with um, a doula that I really respect. And she was like, yeah, you know, and it was specifically about like people hiring her services. She said, yeah, it's hard when you see like a dollar amount, you know, you see a, a fi- you know, 500 extra dollars, 800 extra dollars, whatever someone's charging for that service. It's really hard for parents to, you know, qua- like basically quantify that or qualify that. She's like, however, you know, I really kind of direct them towards you know, oh, are you having a shower? Do you have a list? And it's like, you're willing to buy a $600 stroller that you've never seen before or used before or put your kid in before, right? Because that's, that's the state of the art. That's what the person across the street has, or that's what your friend has, or you're, you know, you've never been a runner before, but you're really going to take it up when you get that running bomb stroller or whatever. But it is, it's these created created images of success or or like, or need, like you're saying, it's like, I don't think people just, there are people who buy and access whatever, but I also think that people think these are the things that I need to take care of my baby and I can buy those. And that is something I can control. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember we always fought with our tax accountant because Alex was a non-stroller person. He's like, we don't need a stroller. I don't want one. And our tax accountant, like twice, we went two years without getting one. He was like, you're crazy. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you do it without a stroller. And Alex was like, well, one or two maybe, but then hopefully they're walking. Yeah. Yeah. Very but it's we, fill in the blank. It's whatever it is. You know, I think it's exactly. You know, what it's yeah. Like most yeah. children don't have their own room. Most babies don't have their own nursery. In, in the world. Very, in the world. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very commercial. It's a very commercialized American experience. It's a very. the perfect nursery. Totally. It's a very like white middle class like thing to do, <laughs> you know, to have the. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I no. just think, you know, what you're saying is true in the sense of, you know, even when we one of our like best episodes ever, uh, you know, was about really the relationship impact that, um, having a baby is on yeah. and becoming us. And the reality is one of the huge, one of the big things that happens is this sort of thing is you, this mentality of spending money and making these large purchases, like even like, okay, well I only have one kid now, but I should definitely upgrade from my compact car to like a huge SUV. We should do that right now. Or like, we've been really talking about buying a house, but you know, we haven't done it yet, but since I'm pregnant, we should do that right now. And she's like, why would you do that to your relationship? Why would like, you add those why? stressors when yeah. you already have a stressor? Why would you double yeah. your monthly expenses? Yeah. Like, or why would you put yourself at financial risk when you were also adding a person to your life? And I just was really humbled by that. And also just taken back, like, I think, you know, I think those things, even though I know none of those are true, I still have those anxieties myself and approaching like a season of having kids like, well, I should have this and this and this in place. And it's like, you know what? You need to have your you in place and your partner in place. Mm. And, you know, like you said, looking to him and saying, you're not happy. And I'd rather you be happy while we do this next thing than miserable yeah, or, or secure. It's so hard because I think culture is like that water video when when you're a fish in water and you don't know what water is Mm because you've never had to step outside of it and look at it and analyze it. And so often, and this, this happens all the time. It's not like you can just wake up once and say, oh, now I know it. Now I know. I see everything. It's clear. All the time we're constantly waking up and becoming aware of like, oh, wow, what is happening around me? And the pressure of suburbia and um, the white picket fence and the nuclear family, I mean, there's a whole design series about how almost all of our everyday objects are designed for four like a table is designed yeah. with four chairs, a toothbrush holder in the bathroom, like all of those like default things in Lowe's, mm-hmm. they have four Not And it's just, it's pushing you on a path that if you don't take a minute to stop and say, is this like, do I actually want two children mm-hmm. is a reasonable question, but nobody will ask you that. They'll say, when's your next kid? Like, how's your uterus doing? Like, yeah. when are you popping right. out another baby? Or on the, um, or on then the if flip you have more side, than two. Right, exactly. On the flip <laughs> side, then it's like, what if... Yeah. Like, I think there's a lot of pressure also to stop at that perfect two and be like, oh, well, my family's done and we've got this like great little, you know, we, we don't have to worry about fitting any more car seats into the car and we don't have to worry about like, you know, a house with five bedrooms instead of four, you know, it's, it's a, I think it goes both ways and it's, it's very much a, it's so patternistic for sure. So this is the, this is like one of the core philosophies of, of how we live. And it's also one of the philosophies of the company that I'm running. But the idea, the statement that I have up on my wall and, and, you know, burned in my heart is that you don't have to do things the way they've always been done. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And it's something I love about startup culture, right? That's the, that's the heart of startup culture. You don't have to do things the way they've always been done. And I want to take that really beautiful idea, but then continue to ask gently, even gentle questions, like, does it have to look like this? And when Alex and I first decided to get married, we, we looked at the fact that people were spending, I think the average is something like $30,000, but you know, in the cities and the urban areas, people spend $50,000 on a wedding. Again, Mm -hmm. white, Mm -hmm. middle-class, you know, not everyone will do this, but there's just so much pressure on this day being this perfect Instagram ideal. And I just, we just thought, what a terrible thing to do to a part, a new partnership is to take on huge amounts of debt and then be in stress Mm -hmm. because of it. For what? For the photograph that tells people that you have a great marriage? Well, do you like, Mm -hmm. and so we, we ended up, um, we had a, a wedding. We snuck into a park. Uh, we had 12 people and then we threw two parties, one in San Francisco and one in New York. One was at my aunt's house. One was in a warehouse in like borderline sketchy area in the city. And, uh, I went to Trader Joe's and I spent $400 on, like barbecue stuff and some chips and some, I think, chocolate covered pretzels and some soda. And, um, we did all of that for under $5,000 because we didn't want to be in debt. We just wanted to hang out with friends and laugh. And we told them what a beautiful ceremony we had, but we didn't make anyone fly anywhere if they didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I, I, every time, like, I feel like every time we interact, I'm like, we, would just get along so well. Cause we did the same exact thing. <laughs> I mean, we just couldn't even imagine spending money on something that would, was over in a day, you know? I mean, we spent money on it, but it was like $3,000 and yeah. And we had an amazing time. And then, you know, it was a Lord of the Rings themed wedding. So there's that. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. If we have that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I think and, it's, oh, I, I love know. what you're saying. Yeah. I have one other one for you. I want to, I just want to give this to people if they're listening. Um, uh, the other thing for the baby shower, the first time around, um, Mm. we had both of us there and Mm. I did this thing. I haven't talked about this, so it just came to mind and I wanted to share it. Um, for my partner, for Alex, I, I emailed all of his friends that were dads and then a couple of dads in his life, plus his, his now boss. And I said, can you write a letter to him about, um, what it like what fatherhood has meant to you and how to survive the first year mm-hmm. and so he got this stack of I think it was eight six or eight letters from these people and he now he reads it every every birthday of Leo's our little kid mm. I've got a little folder called dad letters it cost no dollars mm-hmm. to do I mean stamps but right. like there's just I just that that those are that's like those are the heart things that mean so much to me yeah that are so much more than a stroller. Yep. Totally. Because the stroller, I mean, even if you use the stroller in five years, you won't. I mean, it's it's gone. Either it's destroyed or you gave it away or whatever. But those those things that actually really, really mean something and sink in are the, are the memories that you have literally for forever. I'm curious, you know, right. there's so much that you've described about your relationship with Alex that sounds like you guys just have a really, really thriving partnership and that you've worked really hard to have that. So what was your postpartum transition like and how did it affect your relationship? 
Hmm. That's a great question. Um, the first time we, I had three months of time away from work, although I did start working a little bit earlier on things. It, it was really interesting because I, I only wanted to work on what I wanted to work mm-hmm. on. Had you given me work that I had to do and was obligated to, I probably would have just like been in a puddle sobbing. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's hard to make that distinction. Like had I had to go back to an office, I think I would have collapsed. Alex had four weeks off of time, paid time off. And then he went back to um, work, but he had, he had negotiated at this new job uh, because we, we knew we were pregnant at the time. He said, you know, I would like to work an 11 month year and have one month to be with my kids every year Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, So he has a month of paternity leave in perpetuity every year. So last, last year we took August And does that replace vacation time? Like, does he get vacation time in addition to that as well. Yeah. yeah. So he's about four weeks of vacation total because holidays, you know, the standard is like holidays are nine or 10 days, which is two yeah. weeks and then two weeks of vacation. His is all, all set. We take a week at Thanksgiving, a week at, um, Christmas. We take the federal holidays off. Uh, he also has talked to his boss about, um, sick leave. So anytime the kid is home from daycare, he's home. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no distinguishing between mom and dad here. We both are home on the sick days and we both try to get a little bit of work done if yeah. we can. I like that. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So yeah, no, he gets four weeks of paternity leave and then he gets vacation during his 11 month year okay. as well. That's really great. So he had that when Leo was born and, yeah. and so he was home for that first, that first few weeks with you. Um, and then I'm trying to remember my sister came out for six weeks because Leo was born in May and my sister's a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. She came out after Alex left and then Alex's parents came out for two or three weeks. So I had someone else around. They actually lived with us, all of them in our one bedroom in Brooklyn. So it was was squeezy. (laughs) Um, but it was also really great. The squeezing was super hot. And we finally realized that with a newborn and guests, we should probably get an air conditioner. Our intolerance, like our ability to sweat through the heat wasn't cutting it for people over 70 or under one. <laughs> right. So we did get an air conditioner. <laughs> um, and, and then, uh, I, I mean, postpartum was slow. I was 30 pounds over what my baseline is. And, I just remember having a little bit of frustration because I was like, I don't want to be back to my old self, but I would like to have a pair of pants that fit. Mm, right. Like even my, like my first try, like I would just, I want to feel, I don't want to have to buy all new clothes just to feel good when I go back to the office. Can I just, can something work out here? And I ended up buying new yeah. clothes because it took me, I think like a year to feel like I was back. What is back? That's such a terrible yeah, what phrase. Is back? It took me a year to feel comfortable. Mm, that's a great way to And, um, yeah. And like, and agile, mm. like I could walk through the well, forest. And, and a little bit of background, like, like you have a yoga, no, I think you've actually been a yoga instructor. Is that correct? Yes. So yeah, that yeah, sort of baseline yeah. of activity for you may be different than for, than for others. So what, what did comfortable be, being comfortable and agile? What did that really look like for you? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So took a year for me to feel like I could do a hard workout again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have almost 30 years of doing that. So 
I was a college swimmer and then I was a, I trained to be a yoga teacher. And I think the first three months I wanted to move, but it had to be light walking, like a mile ish Mm -hmm. of light walking, um, carrying my kid around. And then the second three months I wanted, so months three to six, I wanted to do a little more activity, but not that impactful, Mm -hmm. like swimming Mm -hmm. felt really good. Um, but there is just so much slowness for things like, and also my breastfeeding boobs were like five times the size of my normal boobs. And they're really painful to put into a sports bra and like jumping or running or any of that. I tried the two sports bra thing and I just, I just kept shaking my head being like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm just going to spray milk all over everyone around here. And by about 12 months, it was easier to, um, my kid was eating solid food and he was not dependent on my body as much. And I was starting to feel, um, what's a good way of like, like my container was coming back together. Mm -hmm. There's kind of this outward expansion that happens where you just like, I feel like my heart's over there on the other side of the room and my boobs are over there. And like, I don't, I don't quite like if I reach my hand behind my back, don't really know what I'm going to find. And just like a reacquainting with the self and recollecting of the self in whatever form it comes back together. Hmm. That's, I, I, that's a very interesting and beautiful way of putting it. I think, you know, something that we, we've covered from a lot of different angles on the show is just the expectations, the cultural expectations. You know, you, you, you did the same thing. Like you start to use the phrase, like I got my body back. And then you're like, wait, I don't even believe in that. (laughs) It's that ingrained. You know (laughs) what I mean? It's, it's really tricky because we really are expected to, to really be, to go back to normal, to go back to what, to how things were before we even had our first child. And it's an incredibly, it's an incredibly complex part of the postpartum journey. Yeah. And also something that I, that I'm just learning the second time around with, um, the, the load bearingness of caring. I always joke with Alex now. I'm, so I'm in my second pregnancy and I'm 30, almost 35 weeks at the time of this recording. And I joke with him and I'm like, Hey, you want to take this 30 pound weighted vest? I'll give it to you for a day. Do you want it? You know, and like, and I'm just carrying 30 pounds around right now on my frame. Um, And every time I go up and down the subway stairs, I'm doing squats Mm -hmm. with that extra 30 pounds. But the cool thing is that I am probably getting stronger glutes, which I've wanted forever (laughs) because of it, right? Like there's just this built in load bearing exercise and oh boy, my knees, my feet, my um, hip flexors, they're all so sore by the end of the day. But if you ask me to voluntarily carry a 30 pound weighted vest around for nine months, I would never do it. Like I wouldn't sleep with it on my stomach. No, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I have this strange and cool opportunity and I may not be doing spin class or soul cycle right now at 35. You can't do it. Biking with this belly doesn't work. I've tried. Um, It just gets all in the way. Um, But but I do have this opportunity where every stair step that I take, I'm strengthening my body, which is pretty cool. And it's, it's, it's cool even just from the perspective of, like, I think when you really 
learn to work with your body during pregnancy. And obviously, you know, for people listening to the show, there are so many different kinds of challenges that can present themselves in pregnancy that don't always make that as, as possible as we would like. But, you know, even, uh, even as a doula or Laura, as a midwife, you know, we're always coaching women like, okay, (laughs) think about birth. Like you, you, depending on how you want to birth, depending on how birth goes, like no matter, no matter what, like doing a lot of deep squats is not going to make the situation worse. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, like you're saying, it's like, okay, thinking of every stair that you take, every subway stair, every, you know, apartment complex stair, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like, it's like, this is an opportunity for your body to be, to become stronger, to become more ready for the work that's ahead, both in birth and in, you know, and beyond in your postpartum period. Yeah. How, yeah. Do you know the work of Katie Bowman? No, I love Katie Bowman. She's amazing. Yeah. She, yeah. I just keep thinking about, she has that essay about, um, you know, we want natural births, but we live on natural mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. And, and she talks about how, like, if we were squatting to sit, to eat, to move, to, uh, defecate, to urinate, to all of these things, we would have the squatting yeah. muscles that are, would allow us to have natural births, but we're so conditioned in a sitting culture. We, we barely walk very much at all. And Mm -hmm. we don't squat past 90 degrees. And so this second pregnancy, I have been so fascinated with it. The first one was so hard on me and I was so overwhelmed in my physical body that I just, I like, and I had leg injuries and I got depressed in the beginning and I was really sick for half of it, that it was all I could do to just kind of cope with that and the emotional heaviness of having to figure out how are we going to let half the team go? And those kinds of questions the first time around that this time around have been so much more focused on, um, really mindful conditioning of my body and preparing myself for birth in a way. Cause like, like if you were, if you were to say, Hey, I want to run a marathon, people would, (laughs) and, and then you said immediately after that, my body's totally designed for this. So I'm just going to like sit here right. and chill until marathon <laughs> yeah. day. People would laugh so hard at you. They would be like, I don't, I think you might have to train just a little, yeah. like you would be prepping to do this thing. And birth to me is of a magnitude that is that physical that a lot of people aren't familiar with that like intense nature of the physical part of it. And so this time around, I'm like, no, I want to walk. I want to walk four or five miles a day. I want to do my physical therapy. I want to do squats. I want to like gently work my body to its place. And it's so different because the body is so changing. It's not, it's not aggressive. It can't be forceful. I have to really pay attention and be conscious of my ligaments because I don't want to strain anything, but also I can do squats. Like I can do a lot of them. Yeah. It's funny that you say that, Sarah, because I actually absolutely use that exact metaphor with women (laughs) because, and I have, you know, I know my friend will not mind I share this. We actually had her on the show, but I had a friend who was approaching her second birth and had said from the very first day, I'm getting an epidural. That's what I want to do. She'd had a baby before, had an epidural. She's like, that's what I want. She was maybe, I don't know, Melissa might remember too, maybe around 30 weeks. And she was like, I think I'm going to go natural. And I was like, I had this huge, like, crisis of conscience because I'm like, my entire life's work is to like help women have the option to do that if if they want to do this. And this is my very, one of my very best friends, but I felt like I needed to level with her and say like, okay, what are you Mm. doing? You got 10 weeks, girl. And that was really, yeah, that was, and that was the conversation. And I said, you know, 
I like, you know, at first I totally like calculated what I'd say, but then it was really like, no, what would I say to the same? I would say the same thing to someone who's eight weeks pregnant that I say to someone who's 30 weeks pregnant, which is okay. How are you going to prepare for this? Because while it is so true that we are made for this, that our bodies can perform this amazing physical act, which is getting pregnant, carrying a pregnancy and having a baby, our, like you said, our lifestyles do not inherently prepare us mm, for it yeah. now, you know, and, um, is it childbirth without fear where he talks about the Fisher woman? Yeah, I think we've talked totally. about this on the show before too, but he basically is looking at the advent of modern work and yeah. women and how it's changed our, yeah. And how, and obstetrics and how it's changed our bodies. And so he says, you know, birth is easier for oh, the Fisher yeah, yeah. woman than the typist mm, yeah. or the yeah, receptionist. Exactly. And it's like, not because she's inherently like, it's, you know, and it's like, it's not because she doesn't work. It's because she physically uses her body yeah. all day, every day. And so yeah. I really talk with women about that because I think, you know, in a perfect, you know, you can do all of the right things physically. You can do yoga, you can walk for miles a day and you can have difficulties in labor. So it's, it's never a cause and effect with <laughs> preparing for no. labor, but I do think it is, I think it's a good attitude and space to have to use the things that do come in. Like you're saying, you're carrying a 30 pound sack of child around (laughs) and doing more squats than ever. And to, and to praise that, because I think that that's really what it comes down to is, you know, you work a nine to five or you, most people work an eight to seven job every day, you know, in your line of work, what can you do? And it's like, you can take the stairs. You can uh, use one of your breaks to go on a walk. You can go outside and you can, there are things you can do. And so finding what those Mm -hmm. things are that, like you said, make you feel more physically confidence. You're building your own confidence in your body by putting it to work. I I always, with that, Mm -hmm. with that Fisher woman story or like, you know, the, the idea (laughs) of like, you know, we hear of the idea of a woman giving birth, just popping out a baby in a field or in a forest or whatever. It's like, okay, well, the lowest common denominator there is that she was in a field or a forest to begin with. (laughs) Like I'm not in a field. Yeah. (laughs) I just don't go to the field, you know? Yeah. Where are you right now as you're listening to this podcast? Are you sitting in a car, right? Are you sitting at your desk? Okay. Home. (laughs) Exactly. Totally. And I, I don't think, you know, I, I hope that no one listening to this, like, you know, feels like we are, are diminishing, you know, the modern role of woman or of, of human, you know, humankind. And, and, and certainly that's not the intention, but I think that what Sarah is saying is, is so valuable and important that, you know, if, if we, if we want to achieve a certain goal, then we have to prepare for that goal. Can I ask you, I mean, you've described some things that you've done very differently in this pregnancy, um, are there any things for birth specifically that you're preparing for differently than your first birth or, or are you kind of taking the same approach? Yeah. So the first time around, I had to really separate around and think about like, what, what was I passionate about? And I, I, I struggled cause I wanted to have a vaginal birth an unmedicated vaginal birth if possible. But my, um, like intensity of desire was not high, if that makes sense. So my, I was like, this is what I would like, but it's okay with me if I don't have that. Like, especially when it came to um, medications and an epidural, I was like, I'm actually pretty fine with that. Like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I've never been through it before. And uh, I'm, that one sounds like I would like to be able to call it Mm -hmm. once I'm in there. Um, 
but I would strongly prefer to have, I had much more intensity of desire of having a vaginal birth versus a C-section. However, I have some medical history that makes that not necessarily possible. So I also had, okay, I'd really like to have this, but I understand why it won't be possible in mm-hmm. some, mm-hmm. in some realms. So I guess I was, I was pretty like, I was on board with birth preferences over yeah. like, <laughs> here is the to-do list, doctor, please make sure this happens. Um, and, and it was nice to have that range. And we had a really intense, intense, um, laboring process that I adored my epidural. Like I had just, I had a party in that teeny tiny hospital room and I was, I was really glad in that case, in that circumstance, in that body mm. for that child, that that was the way that it went. Um, for this one, however, I'm more strongly excited about having an um, unmedicated delivery. I think that I've been preparing my body and my mind better. And I, um, I moved. So there's a birthing mm-hmm. center in Manhattan that I'm going to work with, which oh, I'm cool. really excited about. And they're, they are, they're on the 10th floor of the hospital building. And then the labor and delivery ward is on the 11th floor. And Mm -hmm. I had a massive amount of hemorrhaging last time. um, And I lost a lot of blood and became really anemic post-delivery. So my husband is not, not on this, on like a home birth Mm -hmm. track with me. He is too scared. He's like, no, there's no, there's no world in which you not living is Mm -hmm. okay with me. So for those reasons, being at like being one floor away from the hospital is really important to him yeah. and to me. Stronger from him. Well, what a great, what like, a great combination listen. to have. You know that facility, those facilities right next to each other. Yeah, the doctors were so funny. I was like, so do you just go back and forth between the floors? She's like, we run, we run <laughs> between the floors. I was like, oh. <laughs> so. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, that's different. We have a new hospital. Um, I've been, I think the biggest change is the mental change. I, I haven't articulated this, so I have to like, it's only been in my sphere. Uh, I'm really excited that birth to me right now feels like an opportunity to release or let go of an old self mm-hmm. and call in a new self. And I feel like there's a lot of snakeskin shedding that's happening in my life right now, like old ways of being that are really ready to be burned up and let go. And there's new ways of being that are calling to me. And I'm excited for the portal that is this like journey into a new state or a new place. And I've been reading a lot about hypnobirthing and working a lot on visualizing mm-hmm. um, the peacefulness. Like I, I, someone asked me what I was reading lately and I'm just swimming in Ina May's birth stories and hypnobirthing books and just trying to like flood myself with imagery of really yeah. beautiful things. It's so powerful to do that. I really, really resonate with that. And, and I know, you know, so many, so many women that have experienced a really positive outcome from, from preparing mentally and emotionally in that way. And I think spiritually, I think that the really, you know, one thing that I, I talk a lot with women about is that 
yes, birth is a portal and it's not just a physical portal. No matter how birth happens, no matter how the baby comes, like you are actually opening on every single level. And so to, to be doing that preparation, that work of opening even before birth begins is, is really powerful and really effective. Um, Mm -hmm. and it just, it just makes you so capable of, of that multi-layered opening that isn't, isn't fixated on just the physical or, you know, just the mental. It really encompasses all of those things. Um, and it becomes so self-fulfilling too, because even if the birth is completely different than anything I could ever even imagine or expect, or takes four left turns in a way that I need to recover from, I'm still doing the work now and it's still happening. Like it's still in play, which is so cool to me that, that it's, it kind of, you know, you, you just start the wheels turning and they're going to move and I can't control it, but it's cool to be yeah, inside of totally. all of that. So I know from, you know, the things that I've seen you sharing and writing and, and, um, you know, talking about on your own podcast and the conversations that we've had that you are being really intentional about the preparations that you're making for this upcoming maternity leave, which is really just around the corner for you now. Um, is there anything that you would want to share with our listeners about how you're preparing for this, whether that's something that's different? I know, I know a lot of circumstances are different now than when you were pregnant with Leo, but kind of, um, maybe some takeaways that, you know, through, through your own preparation and through, the, the work and the collaboration that you've done with so many other women now through Startup Pregnant that you can share as far as your uh, planning for, for postpartum and maternity leave goes? Mm. Yeah, I, I have, um, I want to take more time off. And that's a hard thing as an entrepreneur and a business owner and in the very, very early stages of building something. But we're planning on about six months of time for rest and recovery and taking care of a newborn, which is not mm-hmm. restful or recovery. It's, right. it's all blended in there. But um, the reason is my baby's due in October and the idea of trying to ramp up energetically in January in the dead of winter just sounded like a really bad mm. predicament. Um, but it does mean that I've had to prepare for six months of um, unpaidness mm-hmm. of right. not like, how do you finance it? So that's been a challenge. The thing that I want to call forth this time around, and this is really related to the portal of change, and I think is something I don't, I can't, I, I, I'm not back from my hero's journey with lessons of here's how to do it. Here's your 10 steps for how to let things go. I am deep inside of the learning curve that is how not to do everything mm-hmm. myself. Like I'm very type A. I want to plan everything. I want to control everything. I want to know that everything's going to turn out exactly as I planned. And calling forth and being vulnerable and letting other people help me and um, asking for it is my learning edge mm-hmm. this time around. And I, I, what I can do, and this is very hard for me, but what I'm practicing is saying, like getting very clear on what it is that I want it to look like. <laughs> And in an ideal world, I want a woman of, in my tribe to come over for an hour a day, mm. every day. Mm. And I want people to feed me. And I want to, um, I want to be just flooded with like tenderness for the first 40 days. Um, I, like 
like really the dreaminess of all of it. I think sometimes we're afraid to even mm-hmm. put our desires yeah. into visions and right. like just visioning it is, is kind of all I can do is keep putting it out there and keep telling my friends, Hey, I actually want you mm-hmm. to call me every day. Right. That's okay. Like then the controlling part of me comes back in and I'm like, we're going to set up Voxer in advance and you're going to send me a text message and you, I want you to do it three times before yeah. we start. Like <laughs> it does come out, but my work is to really put in the, the, the vision of like, who do I want to be surrounded by? What do I want to, it to feel like? Why do I feel guilty for wanting to have a massage mm. every day? Right. Like why, why do I, that's, that's not actually an abnormal thing right. in many cultures. So why do, where does that come from? Where is the internalized patriarchy, you know, or the hyper-individualization of the Western world? You shall do everything yourself. You should bounce back within two weeks. Or, and the, and the isolation yeah. and the isolation we had, we did an episode with, a um, uh, American expat who has had her babies. She got married to a Guatemalan and has had her babies there. And I loved what she shared there that in that, cultural setting that it would actually be insane to expect a new mother to be alone with her newborn for, you know, 10 plus hours a day. Like it just, it just would never happen in that culture that you would be, you would have people around almost all the time, whether that's extended family or, you know, just your, your neighborhood community, you know, friends, sisters, whatever that looks like. Um, and granted most of us, you know, living in a North American or Western world may not be able to pull off that level. I may not want that level of, of proximity, but I love what you said where it's like, you're kind of setting up this vision that, okay, I want to have people around, like not just, you know, cause if you just say like, I want to have people around, I want to have support. I want to have community. If you're, if you're not specific, then it's not going to happen. And so saying, I want to see someone every Mm -hmm. day (laughs) is a lot more, a lot more effective and a lot more powerful and a lot more likely to happen. And then also, like you said, you're going to have to work hard to kind of re-engage with that and allow it to change. If you're like, actually, I really don't want to see anyone today and that's totally fine. But also checking in with yourself when you are putting up a wall that is really just kind of serving the isolating, um, you know, independent, resilient, uh, norm that our culture really promotes, because that's the thing we all say we want community, but then, you know, when you're actually having a bad day, a lot of us just actually hole up and don't text our friends. Exactly. Exactly. And so the preparation work there's the business side of it, but then there's the community side of it and putting in the infrastructure, um, especially to mitigate against whatever the norms are. If the norms are for somebody to be home for 10 hours a day, taking care of a baby, like how can I disrupt that? How can I interrupt that? And how can I do Mm -hmm. myself a favor by doing that now? And, and so some of the things, there's a, a local mom's group and I signed up for their Thursday classes and there's like a local breastfeeding circle and I signed up for their Tuesday classes. Um, and then I'm, you know, telling uh, all the friends that I, would like to have around me energetically at that time. Like, here's my number, text me. Can you check in with me every day? Um, and, and then there's a couple of windows of really weak spots. Like when my husband goes back to work and I'm alone for three weeks mm-hmm. and I, it's starting to be winter and we don't have family around. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm scared yeah. of that, that part. And, and then, so it's just, it's, it's not easy. And I think, it does make me a little sad that we have to work so hard to do it 
Like I wish it were more embedded. Um, yeah. But I also, once you, when you can identify like, here are the real holes. I know that I'm going to need, I, I like to, I like, the, I need like two to three hours of, of talking with women right. every day in my life. I just do. I sleep better. I feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband doesn't get wide eyes from my two hour dialogue at night because <laughs> I've already done it. Like there's just, you know, there's yeah. like thresholds where I'm starting to become aware and, and I want to make sure that it's not perfect, but I want to do what I can now so that that's going to be okay. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's never going to be perfect, but oh my gosh, like the range of postpartum experiences and I have experienced a vast range of postpartum experiences and none of them are perfect. In fact, you know, with Etni, my most recent, I actually had the most significant breastfeeding challenges of all my, all of my yeah. postpartum periods, but I had so much support. It was insane. Oh, and good. I felt so incredibly loved and supported and empowered through that time, despite having really dark moments. I mean, Laura was there for all of it and knows that I like texted her from the deepest, darkest pits of despair and, you know, cried every single day. And so it doesn't mean it was like, it doesn't mean the community made it easy. It just made it bearable. Yeah. Like it just yeah. made it doable. And, and, and I look back on it, like it was the most glowing, like magical time of my life. <laughs> I mean, mm. despite that there, despite there being challenges, I think, you know, and, and I just knew that I knew how to set up that support like, and I just second didn't know how to do that the first time. Yeah. Yeah. The next iteration. Second, third time around. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, this, you know, kind of for me, what you just said also throws back a little bit to what you were describing when you were in that startup culture and you felt like you're doing all of this work on top of the work that you're doing just to kind of find a way to figure it out. And it feels like you're the only one that really cares and the only one it really affects. And it's kind of unfair to be putting that burden on women and And likewise, it feels kind of unfair to be putting this burden on us of like, we have to reprogram culture and we have to, you know, show people how to actually be in community. And we have to do all this reaching out and all this setting up. And like you said, you wish it were just more embedded. And, and I think at the end of the day is unfair and it is unfortunate, but it is kind of like, I mean, this is the work that people like you and I have devoted our lives to. This is why you're doing Start a Pregnant. This is why I do mother birth because we we know that even though maybe the work is unfair, that it has to be done. Yeah. Like we have to be the one, we have to be part of reprogram, reprogramming culture and saying like, actually you can't do this on your own. Yeah. yeah. And then being insistent when other, you know, mom friends of mine, if I'm far, far away, I send them like three boxes of Lara bars and I'm like, you will not have enough food and you don't even know yet. Like, <laughs> and you, it has to be eatable within two minutes or less. Uh, and if these wrappers are, you can probably open them with one hand, you know, and it's just that kind of that, by the way, are you allergic to nuts? Good to know in advance, but that kind of stuff is really helpful. And I think the other thing, there's the practical considerations of the first three to six months, but zooming out, I think the thing that scares me the most is the long-term picture because we got pregnant with Leo and then I breastfed him for almost two years and I got pregnant while I was breastfeeding. And so I'm currently pregnant and I'm going to- Were you trying? Yeah, we were trying. Um, And and I stopped breastfeeding pretty soon after because it really hurt. Um, mm-hmm. they just, the nipple soreness was way too intense for me. And I ended up crying while I was breastfeeding and Alex looked at me and was like, so why are you doing, you don't right. have to do this, you know? And, and I was like, uh, 
but I do. And I, it, the load of trying to do three people at once, myself, my toddler and grow a human was it was just, or, and, and a placenta, right? Like building all of these things with my body was too hard. So, um, but, but I am 75% of the way into a four or five year journey of using my body to grow other bodies mm. and mm-hmm. the like cumulative effects of, um, nutritional depletion and, uh, thyroid issues that affect so many women, energetic stuff, imbalances. Like I'm really conscious of that. And what I am afraid of is that all these little things, having someone to talk to every day, getting good quality food, not having to stress about food. If I haven't mentioned food enough, food is like a love language for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now I know what to send you. (laughs) Totally. It's like, well, my... There's like a, there's like epigenetic stories that I've found fascinating recently in my family history. My grandfather was born at seven months pre-meat and was just sent home. And there wasn't a time when we had the Mm -hmm. neonatal care for young babes. It was kind of like, good luck, mourn, he'll probably die. This was the 1920s. And, um, and then he lived through the great depression and skipped lunches. And so he, you know, hoarded food in different ways and like, one of the ways that I get the most stressed out in my partnership is when there isn't food in the fridge. Uh, so mm. the other night we had a um, a family meeting where <laughs> I was talking about like how I wanted to prepare and Alex was like, yeah, I'll take care of you. And I was like, that, nope, that's not, I need, here's what I need. This is what I need. I need a meal plan on the fridge every day. I want the freezer to be entirely full. I need seaweed stacked up over there and chia seeds over here. And I need peanut butter over like, and I realized how much I needed to know slash micromanage the food Mm -hmm. part of this. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was, this is, I think such a hard part about partnerships is like, he didn't, he, he doesn't know what it's like for me or why. And it's not necessarily rational Mm -hmm. what I'm feeling and experiencing. But the best I can do is say, this is really important to me. It stresses me out to no end. And this is the path that I see to help. And, uh, and all of that. Here's how you can help me alleviate that. Yeah. Here's how I'm not saying that it's quote unquote normal, but that's not the thing that matters here. Making me normal is not our goal. (laughs) It's never going to be our goal. (laughs) Um, it, it just, this is a stressing stressor point for me. And, and so back to that zooming out level, taking care of myself with food and with community and conversation, I don't, I just, I'm scared. I'm scared that I'm going to get six months into it and be exhausted and tired and, um, depressed or that it Mm -hmm. might take me two or three years to recover from something that had we done a better job of taking care of me, might not have happened. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's such a normal fear. And I think too, that what you just said is really, I think really, um, insightful of you because, you know, you're describing this sort of like almost energetic pattern in your life. That's kind of come down through these generations and, and yes, like, could you do some work in releasing that and letting that go and letting that shift and transform? Certainly is the time to do that when you're like 35 weeks pregnant or like nursing a newborn? Definitely not. Like maybe not, you know, (laughs) like you just, no, you just need support and you need 
you know, in your case, structure and, and confidence that like these things are being taken care of and, and you, and you do have a partner that can help you accomplish that. You know, you do have the means to do that. Um, so, so access those means and, be as, be as prepared as you can be. And, and there will be parts of this that will throw you for a new curve that you have absolutely no idea is coming and parts of it, you know, new stressors that will come up that are, are totally new or unexpected, but there will also, I mean, there will also be ease and, and so much grace and so much space for the, the, the added becoming that this is going to, to really open up for you. And I think that you're, despite the things that you may be stressed out about, like you're also so, so open and so aware of, of that portal that, that, like you said, that portal of change and and the transformation that is already occurring and that you're already facilitating, um, but that will continue to do so. Right. So mm-hmm. I think you're, I think you are just so on the right track. Oh, it is so wild to be in this space. I'm going to, like, when I listen back, it's going to be really special to have this recording mm, of yeah. where I was too, because it's so like moment to moment, mm-hmm. the, the way that it all stacks together. Yeah. I love, I, I love that. And I know I will love that about this episode is that it's just, this is just so like real and visceral and right now for you. And, you know, a lot of times we're talking with people who are talking about experiences that are in the past and you were like, Nope, this is my life. This is like, this is what is beautiful. This is what is grotesque. Right. (laughs) You know, here we are like, right. Like there's, I can tell you all my dreams for the birth. And also I have no control over it in many ways. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's wild and it's not easy and I'm not sleeping well. I mean, I'm 35 weeks. I'm an elephant in the bed. I can't roll over. <laughs> like it just, yeah, it's yeah. so hard. Actually, I think elephants sleep great. So I'm not an elephant, but it's like, it's just so, you know, texting my husband, like, uh, is caffeine or sleep better right now? Cause I can't even make that decision, yeah. you know, kind of mm-hmm. space. Yeah. And I wanted to say yeah. too, I just in hearing you tell your story, just feel really, inspired and wanted to call out to, you know, there are a lot of ways that as individuals, we can talk back from things that we need. Um, you know, you can look back on your first postpartum experience and you, you realize some very concrete ways that people can help you. And I think a lot of people, you know, approaching either their second birth or even just their first, just have a hesitancy to ask for specific things and reach out. But I just wanted to say like hearing your story, I hope it inspires our listeners to say like, you know, I felt like Melissa said like, her biggest thing was people being with her. And it's really hard to say to your friends who love you and want to care for you in many ways. Like it was really cute. how you gave me that gift, but I'd rather you just be with me or, you know, I actually do just need you to drop off a meal and not be with me. You know, maybe the opposite, like I actually just need to have some time alone with my whole family at night or whatever it is. And I think, you know, I'm always inspired by people using their experience to figure out ways in which people to invite people to be, to take better care of them. And really what it is, mm. it's the vulnerability and intimacy that comes with these experiences of transitioning. Getting, yeah. Getting really yeah. clear on what it is that you need. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're cultured as women to be specific about what we want. Mm-hmm. I mean, no. <laughs> sex, right? We could talk about that forever. Yeah. But um, no, You're supposed to cast like, a really broad net and just hope you get something back, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> but it's like, oh, what do you want? I don't know, whatever you want. Like there's a whole culture of women not being specific about 
what their needs, wants, and desires are, or not even being allowed to have them. And and there's something I think counterculture and brave and also really powerful about getting clear on it. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. of the most effective ways of doing that is to separate out the what from any judgment of it. You know, yeah. I like do I want a foot rub every night? Yes, I do. I really do. Um, do I also have layers of guilt about making my husband do that? And is he the one and isn't he tired? And like, is that fair? Should I be spending that money? Sure. But let me just put that over in the other side of my brain. And like, I can deal with all the emotional effects, but I want to be clear about what it is that I want. And I finally told my husband, I was like a month or two ago, I said, hey, you know how I eat sugar every night? Like I always grab something sweet. And he's like, yeah. And I said, I think that's because I want more touch in my life. And we live in a culture where humans don't touch each other, especially men, right? We can go talk about that. So so if you ever see me eating sugar and you just want to give me a foot rub, I probably will stop eating the sugar and not even know the connection. And ever since every time I'm like, I'm going to go get ice cream, he starts giving me a foot rub. Oh, well, hello. <laughs> and I'm like, it. oh, ah, I just had to give you like habit science <laughs> to make this work. Um, but he's been really, really sweet about it. And it's more, it's like an expression of stress, right? It's like, I carried all this stuff all day and I'm really stressed out. And, um, and so, and then he wants to watch TV. So we'll watch TV and he'll rub my feet while we watch TV. And it's all, it's really... I'm now I'm off on another tangent, but yeah, getting clear about what you want is powerful. Yeah. It's one of the biggest things that come up, comes up in my coaching sessions with women. You know, they, they say, I, you know, I'd like my partner to be more sensitive and it's like, nope, that doesn't mean anything. Like he's like, (laughs) I thought I was being sensitive or what the hell do you mean by sensitive? Right. You know, it just, it doesn't mean anything. Um, we have to be specific. I love that. It's really important. Well, let's, let's, um, Let's wrap this up because we are, we are at the, it's been good. It's been so good. And we're, yeah. So I would just love to give you a chance to, you know, knowing all the wisdom that you have cultivated within yourself and, and that you have, um, invited into your life within your community and within the, the work that you do. If there's one thing you would just love to share with the women who are listening today as we wrap up. Yeah. um, You don't have to know. Like the experience can teach you. Sometimes I find out what I want afterwards. And I used to be so sad about that. Hmm. And I think after the birth, I learned so much more about myself and things got clear. And do I wish I knew it beforehand? Yes, of course I did. But you don't have to know. Hmm. Sometimes you can get mad and sad and scared and frustrated. And say, gosh, darn it, I just want this. And that's, that is the grace of getting to know yourself. Hmm. I love that. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah, how can people find you? I know that, um, lots of our listeners will be interested in the work that you do as well, especially anyone who's really, really interested in that kind of intersection of career and motherhood. So how can people find you? I'm in two places most of the time, um, at Startup Pregnant or at Sarah K. Peck. And most often you can find me on the websites. So the Startup Pregnant website or Sarah K. Peck website. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, but more infrequently every couple of days because otherwise my head just spins too much. Yeah, totally. Totally. 
Okay, great. Well, Sarah also has a podcast that is kind of just about the conversations around motherhood, career, and how we can, you know, do those in a way that is uh, life-giving to both us and our families and our projects that we're passionate about. So you can check that out as well. We'll share links in the show notes to all of the different things that Sarah's up to so you can connect with her. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, I feel like, just such a privilege to to have and, and reflect the honesty that you've shared with us today. And also, um, just personally really exciting for me since, um, we've been kind of, you know, admiring each other from afar. So yeah, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Such a pleasure. So good to spend time with both of you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to mother birth and a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lara and Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.